Well, in Houston, I'm John Herter. It's Tuesday, 12th day in October. Great as always to have you along, everybody. In a nutshell, From the Experts is a compressed virtual networking accelerator helping people across industries connect very quickly in a brief, moderated, interactive show format. They were like a TED Talk with interaction, 15-minute expert talk followed by 20-minute group discussion with you. So what's in it for you? Well, the FTE promise, if all goes well, your curiosity spark new ideas, accelerate action, and you may have helped yourself and somebody else solve that problem, make a connection, reaching the opportunity faster. Making authentic connections and expanding your networks has never been more important to your business or your well-being. Folks, help me welcome our guest expert, Aidan O'Brien, CEO of Glue. So Aidan is a tech entrepreneur based in Europe. He's got over 20 years experience in tech, gained from working 17 different countries across five continents, and he is passionate about achieving a more balanced use of digital technology, especially by kids. His talk's going to mix tech, sarcasm, a little serious, interesting factoids, and often football, the British kind, and horses. So that's a little bit about him. So most of you have heard or read about the recent release of the Wall Street Journal Facebook files and Francis Haugen's testimony. Aiden, we could not have timed your talk better, could we have? Yeah, absolutely, John. Um, uh, first, it's, uh, it's great to be here with everyone uh, on the FTE show, and I'm looking forward to the, the discussion uh, following uh, my shorter talk. Um, so possibly, let me start by taking you back to 2014, uh, when I was leading one of four strategic initiatives for the CEO of EMC. It was a truly fantastic job and team, and I was loving traveling from France to the US every two weeks until one day I had a really, really bad meeting. And that evening I found myself uh, all alone in a hotel room overlooking San Francisco and thinking, what on earth uh, was I doing here far away from all my family and friends when, uh, when I actually really needed them? Whilst that bad day, it didn't lead me to resigning, buying a backpack and trekking around the world for a year. Um, it did launch me on a journey to try and make sense of a world of head spinning complexity and constant movement and change and to understand what was and what wasn't actually important. Um, so I realized three things. Uh, firstly, that the work had changed fundamentally and in a bad way. Uh, secondly, that that change has led to us getting social horribly wrong. Um, and finally, that the broader demographic changes as they relate to work that most of us haven't even thought about yet are really serving to bring the first two problems into focus. So I'm going to share my thoughts in each of these three areas, and I'll talk about both the solution we're working on um, and the broader solution space. Uh, I'll also leave you with a handful of key takeaways that might hopefully help you take um, some control back from the tech that we all use every, uh, every day. So as I sat there in my hotel room feeling sorry for myself and worrying about whether my reputation internally would ever recover, um, I felt completely subservient to the company I was working for. Um, I wondered if I was the only person who ever felt like this and if this was just the natural balance of power between employees and companies. Um, I traced the origins of the modern day company back to, to 1937 when Ronald Coase first wrote his treatise on the nature of the firm. Uh, so in a, in a nutshell, that paper says that companies exist because they have jobs to do and because the transaction costs for firms to hire new workers every day and the costs for workers to find a new job each morning are so high that it makes sense for companies to hire workers on long term contracts. 
that definition of in itself didn't presuppose a natural imbalance, but it was around this time that I began to appreciate that digital technologies were having a fundamental impact on how companies were getting work done and how workers were getting paid for it. So, so TopTal, Kaggle, Fiverr, Topcoder, they didn't exist in 1937, but their emergence by 2014 had now given companies a way to get work done without having to hire employees. So put more simply, digital technologies had led to the boundaries of the firm being moved. I mean, that all sounded wonderfully liberating at the time, but obviously things such as AB5 and Prop 22 legislation in California have made it clear there are both positive and negative aspects to these changes. A negative change, however, that was more conclusive was the fact that whereas I might have started my career in 2000 without a company provided laptop or mobile phone, by the mid-2010s, that was simply inconceivable, and I was very much an active participant in the new always-on culture of work. So being one of the first corporate warriors with a BlackBerry meant I could check my emails as soon as I landed in Boston or San Francisco, and that felt good, uh, at least initially. Um, but that feeling of power soon morphed into the realization that I was never actually getting to the end of my inbox. So, I mean, Nick Morgan's book, Can You Hear Me?, um, gave me some excellent technical and physiological explanations of the downsides of digital communications. But with the help of my family, I began to see the deeper problem of being more connected than ever before, and then no longer being a boundary between my work and personal life. So, I mean, as someone who loves work, you know, I initially thought that was okay. And it took me some more time for me to realize that not only had the boundaries of the firm shifted, but the boundaries in my own life had changed, despite me not actually making that choice consciously. Um, and as someone who considers themselves to be vaguely cerebral, um, that made me feel very uncomfortable. Uh, and despite being a technophile, uh, I was now forced to start thinking about the costs on me, my family, and my friends of the benefits that these technologies were delivering. So you know, it actually gradually dawned on me that whilst we're more connected digitally than ever before, at the same time, we've never been more distant or, or more isolated from others. So Nick Carter's book, Glow Kids, was a huge eye-opener for me in terms of the impact on, of age-inappropriate technology on my children. Uh, in short, there's no single credible research study that shows that a child exposed to more technology earlier in life has better educational outcomes than a tech-free kid. The Emmy award-winning Netflix documentary, The Social Dilemma, was what finally helped my wife understand why I was pleading with her every night to charge her phone outside of our bedroom. And sort of, you know, the, the journal's Facebook files, which are all the rage at the minute, have just added, you know, extra grist to the mill. You know, for those of you who haven't had a chance to go through the files or watch the congressional hearings, uh, in short, you know, the former Facebook product manager, Francis Hagan, leaked thousands of internal documents, uh, for internal Facebook documents to the journal. And, and three of the most important takeaways include, you know, Facebook exempts high profile users from many of its rules for good behavior. So it's not a level playing field. And it's also been too, uh, slow to stop unsavory characters such as drug cartels and human traffickers from using its platform. Hey, Second, hey, yeah. Quick, hey, what was the title of that book? The one about the tech and the kids? One of uh, Wendy. That's called Glow Kids and it came out in 2016. It's a fantastic book. Thanks. I'll send you the references afterwards if anybody, uh, if anybody wants them. Perfect. Secondly, Instagram's sort of own research shows that teenagers' mental health 
uh, in particular. Uh, so it sort of risks the teenager's mental health, in particular to, to those of young girls. Uh, and finally, sort of, you know, make no mistake, Facebook is very aware that its algorithms reward outrage. And across all of these points and others, Facebook has, has been seen to repeatedly privilege profits over people's safety. So, you know, whilst I think that we are actually getting very close to big tech's tobacco moments, what really helped me understand the true magnitude of the predicament we're in is, is Douglas Rushkoff's Team Human. You know, in that book, he talks about the idea of the figure and the ground. The figure and the ground is when what was a supporting element becomes the new central focus. So as an example, initially money was created to support the modernization of the barter economy. Money was the ground and the marketplace was the figure in the foreground. But then they switched places and gaining money has now become the central focus of everything we do. The marketplace is secondary. So same with education. Education was initially designed to be light relief for workers, but it has now become this sine qua non to actually get a job in the first place. Technology is the same again. It was initially designed to support humans and our interactions with each other, but technologies today are now programmed to optimize our behavior, isolate us from one another, make us more predictable, and more generally control the environment in which we live. Technology, especially those such as machine learning algorithms, are the figure, and humans have become the supporting ground. What makes all of this even more depressing is the fact is the statistic that 50% of kids born after 2007 will live till 104. So as such, if companies such as Facebook and others are making our lives more miserable, then if things stay as they currently are, well, we're all just going to be miserable for a lot longer. That in of itself is a sobering thought, but, but more important is to try and understand how life will change and why and how we should be demanding healthier social technologies. So, so Linda Grattan of the LSC said that the traditional three-phase life of study till you're 25, work till you're 65, and then die when you're 85 can no longer work. It's impossible to save enough between 25 and 65 to finance a 40-year retirement. Yet there's also no way physically or mentally that we can work at the same level of intensity for an extra 15 or 20 years. So she believes that we'll move from a three-phase to a four or even five-phase life. In addition to the traditional three phases of study, work, and retirement, there are three new phases to add into the mix. The explorer phase, the independent producer phase, and the portfolio phase. So the explorer phase is a phase of discovery, journeying to discover something about the world and also finding out about yourself. The independent producer phase is a novel form of entrepreneurship where people are focused more on learning by producing and prototyping new types of activities rather than necessarily building a company designed to last. The portfolio phase is when people choose to pursue a combination of activities. What makes it a multi-phase life radically different from the one we're currently used to is that these new stages are not age-specific. You can choose to activate them at any point in life. And so once you understand this, you can start to see how you or your kids might organize your building blocks in different ways. And you can start to see how social tools can support people in both building their reputation and maintaining and projecting a coherent identity over a longer life. So if you look at things like this, 
you start to understand why youngsters currently love the ephemeral nature of Snap and its fun filters or the widespread practices of Instagram and Finstagram. You know, all of these things are making it safe for them to try out lots of different identities. However, a deeper knowledge of, of oneself fear an explorer phase, for example, will hopefully facilitate a more considered and healthier use of social tools. So towards the end of 2017, I decided I wanted to address, you know, this issue of human disconnect by seeking to reconnect people with the friends that matter most to them off device and in real life. So I created the company Glue and we launched the first version of the mobile app at the end of the summer 2019. So our vision is to transform the way that people get together in real life in a post-COVID world. It's a, so it's a mobile app that acts as a concierge service that tells you when your friends are close by and, and free to meet up. And we'll even go so far as to tell you which places have the best deals for your group of friends to meet up in. So, I mean, we, we've learned hundreds of things since our initial product launch, but, but possibly let me share with you four things that you might find interesting and somewhat counterintuitive. So the first thing is that young people don't need this service or more specifically students. So we saw there's a real sweet spot for people between the ages of 22 and 40. And our initial value prop didn't resonate with students because they're already together every day. They've yet to experience the problem of a fragmented social circle. We also saw that by the time people get to 40, the default behavior of being become one of a quick phone call to organize lunch for two. So the hardest thing for us is to get an inherently fragmented group of 22 to 40-year-old friends to all download and connect on the app. Second thing is you, know, you don't actually need access to people's calendars for our service to work. So our testing showed us that there's actually less chance of people to getting together if you try and organize something ahead of time. It's because that if you give people three weeks to organize themselves, then they also have three weeks to find an excuse not to do something. So it was for these reasons we built a system of notifications to nudge people to get together in a more spontaneous and last-minute way. Thirdly, despite the fact that we're all sick of never-ending message threads, getting together isn't actually a problem of logistics. The real problem is the issue of people giving up even before they try because they know a logistical nightmare awaits them. That's actually what leads to the weakening and then the breaking of ties between friends. A final thought is, however, is possibly the most disconcerting. So all of our testing and user feedback confirm that people know the importance of getting together in real life and confirm that that makes them happy. However, even despite that, this knowledge isn't actually sufficient motivation for them to break the addiction to their phones and various online social apps. So I'm very conscious that, you know, we can't fix the problem on our own uh, in terms of getting to a long-term sustainable solution. I'd call out three things that I think will be crucial over the next 10 years or so. The first of these three key factors is regulation. So make no mistake, regulation is coming. The question is whether or not we'll look to replicate Teddy Roosevelt's trust busting of the earlier 20th century, you know, with the likes of JP Morgan, Standard Oil and Northern Securities. We may choose to break up Facebook, Instagram, and WhatsApp in pursuit of greater competition. But in a world where network effects create winner-takes-all markets, what's to stop us being back in the same place four or five years from now, but you know, this time dealing with the dominance of TikTok, Clubhouse, and Signal? In a world of infinite information, what we really need is a regulatory regime that's focused on interoperability. So, for example, imagine what possibilities might be opened up if we regulated Facebook's social graph 
by making it a public utility that everyone can innovate on top of. Secondly, um, geopolitics and the splinter net. So it's important to realize that the internet isn't the same for everyone. The experience Americans, Europeans, Russians, and the Chinese each enjoy is markedly different. The question is, uh, is whether the future will be run by digitally open or digitally closed societies. Right now, digitally closed societies like China are consciously using exponential tech to strengthen those societies. On the other hand, digitally open societies are allowing market forces between competing tech companies to degrade society and actually make them worse places to live. Finally, product design. So by being more aware of how we're being manipulated by technology, we can start to demand new features that are better for us. So for example, unique vibration signatures that would help us look at our phones less. A compassion check rather than a spell check to reduce the chance of someone misinterpreting your message or inducing, introducing useful friction, which purposely slows scrolling after a certain time period. You know, how, you know, why wouldn't we even go so far as to have a Hippocratic oath for designers and developers and get them to commit to doing no harm to their users in the same way as doctors agree not to harming their patients? So, so to wrap up, okay, so humanity reached the top of the food chain because we achieved enthusiastic togetherness. But we've now seen that when misused, technology is able to exploit the weaknesses in our human condition and push personalization to its logical conclusion, which is a situation of filter bubbles and isolation. Despite its huge costs, I actually think that COVID-19 has been the most important of wake-up calls. It's reminded us of the importance of others and the idea of time well spent. If we wish to maintain our preeminent position in society, then we need to make more conscious choices about what we focus our attention on and how we interact with others. Unfortunately, the easiest, lowest friction options may actually be suboptimal for us in the long run. Ultimately, it's going to be these types of choices that you know, we have to make in these three areas as individuals, you know, businesses, governments, and societies that are going to determine what social applications look like in the future. And in terms of, you know, some, maybe some key concrete takeaways um, for, for you guys, you know, I can obviously sort of share some simple yet ultimately tactical things to do, such as, you know, buying an alarm clock and start charging your phone outside of your bedroom. I could ask you to commit to not touching your small smartphone for the first hour of every day. Or I could even encourage you to, you know, playfully ask your friends, you know, is everything okay? You know, when they pull out their mobile phones in front of you when you're together in person. Okay, right. so you know, things like this are definitely going to help you stay connected with the people around you. But I think each of us actually needs to go further. I, I truly believe that this topic and climate change are the key fights of our generation. And because of that, you know, I'll challenge everyone to do sort of five things. Okay, firstly, you know, take the time to understand what your real goals are. Okay, you then have a basis for deciding if those extra two hours on YouTube or TikTok are actually going to move you closer to your goal or not. Secondly, you know, when you see something on the internet, you know, then just ask yourself, you know, how do I know if this is true? Okay. Thirdly, I would say, well, check yourself when you're about to post something on the internet and ask yourself, hey, what is this, is this something I would print on a t-shirt and wear that shirt when I'm with the people, you know, sort of that I love or not? Um, fourthly, um, when you see other people being attacked or harassed or bullied online, because we all see it, then I'd encourage you just to send them a quick message saying, is everything Okay. And finally, you know, sort of a, when you see something online that you support or you think is good, then again, you know, I'd encourage you to just send people a quick message to say, I think what you're doing is cool. And I think that enough of us do these things successfully, then we'll be able to rediscover our humanity.
thank you for, for listening. Thanks, Aiden. I appreciate it. So, hey, folks, be sure and take a look at the chat um, and uh, continue to answer the questions. You too, Aiden, if you, uh, if yeah, you can. Yeah, I'll have a look at those, yeah. So, folks, today's show is brought to you by our underwriters. Arion, the full-service project engineering and design firm, respected, trusted, and highly valued by select energy industry clients. Unique Ventures, the energy hybrid technology accelerator with a unique approach to venture capital. Porter Hedges, attorneys at law, the informed choice for complicated litigation in the energy business. Intrapoint, protecting what you care about most, people, profits, brand, and the environment. And Alliance Benefit Group, building retirement plans for your business, that work. Okay. So Aiden, can you answer the question? Let's go back and see. Um, uh, Moshi, thanks for putting that link in there. Mm. Um, you have this question from Liz. She says, uh, is there a lack of such a research study because it would be unethical to do rather than because the underlying premise isn't true? Or is that the studies that haven't shown a benefit yet? Okay, so, so there's definitely studies out there, uh, and it depends on what we say. So it depends on what the specific question is what type of research that's actually been doing. And but there now is a body of research, and this is not just research that's been done sort of you know independently, um, but it's also sort of you know research that's been done by Facebook internally as well. And that's you know obviously sort of what the what the big you know Ferrari is uh, at the minute that you know Facebook have been sitting on that research for you know three, four, five years uh, yeah. and declined not to, to share right. it. The, there's a broader issue around, you know, sort of, um, you know, should Facebook or other companies like that, you know, yeah. be punished for sharing the research because then you actually sort of disincentivize them to actually do that research, which Perfect. is a bad thing as well. So let's go ahead and open the floor, get some feedback from the group. Uh, they, the group discussion is for each of you guys out there. Give your name as you share your comments and experience. And remember, just keep dropping the questions and feedback into the chat. And if I call on you, you're welcome to say pass, and we'll just keep moving along. So, uh, Moshi, are you still there? Do you uh, uh, have anything you wanted to contribute based on your experience? So I, I'd like to put in the phrase that I call the social trilemma. And that seems, seems to be is the place where we get stuck around this technology, which is, you know, it's all involved about some, some form of what is the, the how do we, we regulate speech? So we are very uncomfortable with the, with the government regulating our speech. This is something that, that we don't like. We are a free society. We discover that we don't like it when corporations regulate our speech. And we discover that we don't like it when there's no regulation of speech. So if you just free for all, then we get misinformation and disinformation and hateful content and what have you. And that's why I call it the social trilemma and I've, I'm waiting to see whether somebody has a brilliant idea how to how to break this jump. Thanks for that. So, folks, how are you finding that balance and uh, connecting in person versus remote? Right. What's most important to you when you think about that, or do you have other comments? Feel free. I have found, oh, I'm Annette Cruz, um, and I have found that uh, it's really nice and convenient to have more FaceTime and good conversation with people virtually, 
in a city like Houston, where I am, where it takes an hour and a half to drive across town. So instead of a four hour commitment to see one person, you know, you can just have a 30 or 45 minute face to face and really feel like you get to know them. Um, so I, I feel that there's a new balance in just timing and the fact that we have to commute so far in a lot of cities we live in. So how, just a quick follow-up to that. I mean, how are you deciding? Distance is one thing, but are there, are there other criteria, Annette, that you uh, kind of find yourself deciding when you should meet in person versus no, remote is good enough? Um, I think that there's some tall, like people kind of hated sitting at their desks for a while. So I do HR consulting and I, I have to network all across um, the city with people who are very busy and, um, I find that sometimes it's like, you know, that person was at their desk stuck to the computer all day. And so it's not going to be some good to just continue doing that. But sometimes um, they're, you know, it's quite the opposite. So I guess I just think if you, you get to know people, you kind of ask them, Hey, virtual in person, what works for you and start to get the feel for it. Right. Thanks. Anybody else? Comments, thoughts? I think it's, it's just to, you know, to respond to Annette's point, you know, I think it's interesting if we're talking about, you know, a personal or a professional, you know, context, you know, sort of, a, I think it's one of those where, you know, I mentioned sort of, you know, in Nick, um, in Nick Morgan's book, you know, sort of, you know, can you, uh, can you hear me? And he actually talks about a number of the examples about why digital communication is, uh, is suboptimal, you know, sort of uh, compared to in-person stuff. Now, that's not to say that all communication or all interaction should be uh, in person um, for all, you know, the reasons, you know, sort of, you know, the reasons that, you know, Annette, you know, just sort of a reference in terms of, you know, commute and uh, commute times, but also because, you know, some of those interactions are, are actually don't require, you know, sort of a deep level of sort of, you know, human interactivity, and we actually can go quickly as well. So, I mean, it, it's... The, the distance one is always very interesting you know, because it's a, it's a very American thing as well. When we see other parts of the world, you know, sort of generally, you know, sort of the, you know, Americans have always been much more prepared to travel longer distances to see people um, than sort of what a European you might be as an example. So it's really interesting sort of, you know, to, to hear Annette's, you know, sort of a perspective that, you know, sort of especially presumably after the pandemic when we've actually now seen just, you know, how capable, you know, sort of these tools are and how much we can do with remote tools that we are actually sort of, you know, when you say there's a new balance, that's just very interesting for me to hear that as well, Annette. Alisa, do you have any uh, thoughts on this from your experience? Um, so I think it's interesting how, um, social media and all this digital tools has its benefit and its, um, I guess, destructive side, right? Um, so I think it's very important to figure out how to balance this thing. So as this last year or two has proven that we need these tools in a world where we have to kind of distance ourselves socially. Um, isolate ourselves, but not go crazy at the same time, right? Um, it's, it's one thing when you're in a family of five living in a house in suburbia is another thing if you're one person in a 300 square foot apartment somewhere in the city. Um, and at the same time, like how do we take the good of that social media, that community um, 
Facebook is a scary monster, but at the same time, they are good groups online that help people who have the same ailments to find each other across the world to um, discuss things that they might not be able to do in person or too afraid to talk to their family about or like people can relate. Um, how do we, it's interesting, it's annoying for me to see what my neighbors are talking about all the time. But at the same time, when we have um, uh, low water pressure or electricity is out in the neighborhood, how do I go and tell a call neighbor up, hey, do you have the same issue? It's, you don't kind of go out and just shout at houses to say, hey, is your um, water pressure low? Is your electricity out? But you can go online real quick, say, hey, is everybody else having a problem? And figure out that it's area and not you. Right. So it has this benefits, but how do we weigh it against yeah. the yeah the destructive side? No doubt. Anyone else want to add on to that? Uh, I, I want Anna Vivas uh, commenting, and I think with since the pandemic hit, and uh, we we mentioned that that word disruption, but I think definitely it's going to be a disruption only not only. Uh, for the social media as well, but uh, if you can see the way now we work, the way they were interact, yes, sometimes we have to have the balance, but look at that, we are now connected. We're talking about maybe people else right now in Europe, you make business with a different kind of uh, people around the world, you uh, collaborate in a better way, and that is a positive sense. I understand in terms of the social media, that is a really uh, scared scenes that happenings and well, we have been here all about the Facebook, et cetera, but uh, as Alisa mentioned, also they helped us to connect with the, our, you know, own neighbors and, and see that it's in a common issue we can interact. But the scene is working and, and this you can see also in the real estate. We, we have to think about now the new ways and with technology, with the internet of seeing how we connect in our home, uh, our own homes and have like a better employees, have better, uh, tools uh, to utilize and also communicate and that we need to think about that and I think the real estate has to think about it as well because now our own uh, home is part of the business as well so we need to improve that right where where do you you know and it's different at work than um, with your kids Scott Dozier are you still there I see you turn your screen off anyway uh, he had an interesting perspective uh, between uh, his the way he looks at things uh, with his family versus work, and we discussed that. Uh, Salua, do you have? Uh, can you share your perspective? Yeah, I'm in sales, um, and I have to say that this uh, year and a half has been quite intense, heavy. Um, as you may expect, you know, since people get their energy from, you know, from, from clients, from the interactions and having people, you know, we, you know, we don't get the same signals through screens as in, in life. And there's one element that you can, that we don't have, that is the energy, and literally, you know, energy that you can, that you can feel, that you can um, connect with. Um, so that honestly, that has been quite exhausting. Um, 
now yes you can have some you know shorter the, the one thing that is good is that you know the, the majority of the meetings are very short you know it's half an hour i don't do longer meetings which is which is good but the other thing is also that people certainly in the in the first uh, i would say first uh, eight to 10 months also were less committed to, you know, um, very easily, you know, just canceling meetings, you know, just without any explanation, nothing, just last minute canceling. And that is something that people would not easily do, you know, when you have a face-to-face -face meeting, at least they would, you know, inform you, they will let you know, they would propose you something else. And I felt like people became like, you know, less, um, regarding of some basic courtoisie, I would say, you know, amongst the, you know, your counterpart. Right. Um, so, yeah. Um, no, that's, that's very good input. It's, uh, uh, that's, that's, that's how I feel it. I'm still here stuck at home. Um, and, Anybody yeah. want to back? Go ahead. I, mean, I think Celia is absolutely spot on. And I think, you know, if you actually look at sort of what happens, the way the, the brain works is, you know, in our interactions, it's constantly searching for meaning. And what happens is, you know, when you're actually speaking with somebody, you know, the way you actually sort of get that meaning is not just through the words that we actually say, but it's also through a number of other sort of, you know, much more subtle clues that the brain is hardwired to appreciate, you know, the micro movements in our face or the ambient noise or the ambient temperature in the room around us, you know, sort of the, the little sort of, you know, raise of an eyebrow, all of these mm -hmm. things translate and transmit information to your, you know, the other person's brain so they can actually understand, you know, the meaning of the, of what you're trying to say and in digital communication you actually lose that now that's the reason why when you're trying to do a sales call it's actually much more complicated because it's much more difficult to build that rapport and actually understand um whereas you know obviously other interactions it's less essential for that but you know salu you're absolutely spot on in terms of what you're actually seeing and feeling uh lydell you're in the business of social media for public media what what's your take on all this do you have something you want to share You got to unmute yourself. There you go. <laughs> Thanks. Hey, how's it going? Hey, how you doing? Um, I, I just say that I've, I've noticed dealing with people that um, everything's become a lot more personal um, with them actually seeing inside of your house. And it's kind of changed the way that work flows sometimes, which is a little weird for me. Um, but um, I think some of that some of that uh, personal feel is starting to bleed into the work. Like uh, we have a lot more interaction on um, our images on Facebook and Instagram. We have um, a lot more people commenting and we have a lot more um, just we, our interaction has gone up. And that's probably just because people are stuck in the house and they don't have anything else to do but interact with their social media. Interesting. Anybody else want to comment? John, can I just go back to Elisa's comment earlier on, please? Please. Um, and sort of, a, and I just want to sort of, you know, to unpack social media. It's just to, you know, sort of just to make sure that everybody's on the, you know, has the same understanding. You, we need to sort of, you know, 
divide or disassociate, you know, sort of the benefits from interacting with others, you know, so for the idea there are good groups, you know, sort of, a, and it is good, you know, sort of actually sort of be connected to other people. If you look how societies evolved over the centuries, you know, it's gone from being a geographical thing to being an ideological thing with religions, and then it's become more of a civic thing with monarchies and republics and, and federal states, and now it's actually becoming trait-based. That's how societies evolved over the centuries. Uh, and so the idea that you can be, you know, connected with somebody in Australia or in China, you know, because they share similar traits to you. So that is absolutely something that's good that's come about from social media. The problem um, with social media is actually the underlying business model. Um, and, you know, forgive me if, you know, if you're all very familiar with this, but, you know, the way that, you know, companies such as, you know, Facebook, Instagram, you know, sort of a TikTok and others work is that sort of it's a third party advertiser. They get their revenue from a third party who wants to put adverts in front of the, the noses and the eyeballs of their users. So therefore, it's in, in the interest of the social media companies to make sure that you spend as much time as possible on their products. How do they do that? Well, there's basically a very, very well understood now model um, called the hooked model, which was popularized by Nia Isle, based on work done by Professor BJ Fogg at Stanford. And the whole idea of this is persuasive technology and how do we manipulate users to become addicted? Okay, uh, addicted user means spend more time in the app or on the website. That means more eyeball time. That means more advertising revenue. And basically, this 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 readiness to do whatever it takes to keep users addicted on the products, which ultimately means that they're disconnected from people in real life. That's the problem with social media. It's the underlying business model rather than the actual connection. There's actually studies that show that if you spend 10 minutes a day on each of the different networks, then that can actually improve your sort of your, your mental health and your feeling of connectedness. The problem is that nobody ever spends just 10 minutes a day on these things. And it's, you know, it's one of the reasons why, you know, the digitally closed societies I was talking about before, such as China, you know, they've now actually limited, you know, sort of uh, the time that their citizens can actually spend, you know, sort of on these networks and then video games, for example, for children, it's now limited to three hours at the weekend. So just wanted to make sure we're clear on what's bad and what's not bad about sort of these social media companies. Right, exactly. Comments from uh, anybody else out there? Paul, Scott, Ian, Bo, uh, Wendy, anything else? Hi, uh, it's Hi, Natalia. Hi, Natalia. Uh, if you don't mind, because I've been um, in a gaming business for 15 years, and um, the example about the games um, and the social media, I think those two have a lot in common. They're very different, but they have do have a lot of com in common. Yeah. I don't think that the regulation um, is the answer. And uh, here's why it's my opinion. Um, people are going on social medias and playing, uh, kids are playing games because they're missing something in the real life. And if you're not gonna give them that in a real life, you're just going to take something off, but you're not going to add. And if you're not going to add, they're going to find something else. Um, there is always, the mind is always looking for replacing something that is missing. And we are wired to do it, to work this way. And the reason um, why games are so important for the kids and why uh, they will sell their parents in order to play more. 
is because those parents were not able to give them something. And it's different. It's not uh, the same for every kid. And I can tell that because I've, uh, I, I sold my gaming company after I got my nephews and nieces hooked. And I saw what, it's, what is happening within the family. Before, my, uh, before I saw actual kids and how they react to games, I was thinking that I'm creating games for uh, women over 35 and kids just to have fun for 30 minutes. But guess what? When we did um, the questionnaire, some of the gamers that were women over 35 years old said that they spent up to 12 hours playing the games. Mm-hmm. It was pre-Facebook. Yeah. John, thank you for that. So, I, I, think um, it's impri- I think it's, sorry, Karen. And, uh, one more comment. If you try to regulate something, it's a dopamine game. Um, they get dopamine um, and they get this rush of expecting or uh, when you just next time you open your phone and you go to Facebook or other check what, uh, what is your first feeling when you open Facebook or um, Instagram on anything do you expect to see something or do you want to write something what is, what's your expectation and what's your first action? If and you I will can... realize one of your patterns and you will realize what you're teaching your kids because your kids are taking after your patterns, not somebody else's. And when companies get, um, so I, I, I do realize that Facebook has done a lot of damage, but not by not releasing uh, Natalia Natalia yes. I apologize we're running out of time oh sorry no 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 it's okay thank you very much Adrian. Can I, just quickly, yeah, I just want to quickly riff on, on those points so Natalia your first point around gaming is fantastic you know I completely agree with it and um, there's I've just put a link in the chat there's a, a book by Jane McGonigal called the reality is broken and she talks exactly about that and so you know if you're a, a kid who's you know ostracized at school but you can go home and be a superhero and you get instant level you know leveled up instantly then sort of you know you absolutely want to spend more time in games than others when you talk about adrenaline and dopamine and this is sort of what I alluded to in my talk before and the problem that we have with games and social media in particular is they're designed to increase those adrenaline and those are dopamine hits and that's a very powerful uh, dangerous combination because basically it overstimulates our brains and especially for young children's brains that aren't fully developed they don't develop before they're about the age of 22 that's what's causing the problem that's what's causing the addiction and it's so it's essentially a, a, a we're overstimulating our brains in a way that we've never done it before in the same way that our diet has changed. And that's why that we're seeing so much obesity, for example, and diabetes. It's the same uh, at a neurological level with sort of excessive amounts of dopamine and adrenaline. And that's what we need to be careful about in terms of the long-term development. So true. I'm, I'm going to turn it over to Chip, but Wendy, oh my goodness, I so agree with your comment. Y'all take a look uh, at that. Chip, go ahead. Yeah, so I'd agree with Wendy's comments, uh, you know, and that's kind of amplifying something that Aiden said earlier, uh, which is, I think, important in this discussion. We need to continue to have, in my way of thinking about it, these discussions about our responses to the social media, right? They can't 
uh, social media can't make us do something, but they certainly are a business. And Aiden made that point, and they're in a business uh, with a profit motive. So when you see the new uh, whiz bang things that come out on LinkedIn, you can do a fleet, or if you see something on Twitter where you can listen in mode, kind of like they do on Clubhouse, just be aware. I think it's important for all of us to be aware that those bells and whistles are for our benefit, but probably lowercase b benefit. Therefore, the social media companies benefit uppercase benefit. So uh, just, I think, an awareness and, uh, and a good reason why we're having this discussion today. Yeah, no, thanks, Chip. Okay, uh, anybody else need to say something? Well? I just add one more thing, John, if we still got a minute to, to, to Wendy's point. Wendy's absolutely spot on. Um, there's a great text called iGen by um, Jean Twenge of um, State University in San Diego. And she actually sort of provides this sort of rather disturbing statistic that for the first time ever, um, the level of murders between children has gone down, but the level of suicides gone up. And the explanation is basically that um, because of these tools, these social media platforms, kids spend more time alone in their bedrooms. They're not actually in contact with each other, so they can't actually kill each other, but they can actually cyber bully each other into committing suicide. And so that just, you know, sort of just a, you know, a rather sort of harrowing echo and sort of, you know, what Wendy's sort of uh, alluding to there as well. Thanks, Ed. And that's the last word. So, folks, <laughs> how was the discussion today? Uh, take the 30-second survey that's going to be placed in the, the chat box here in a second and share FTE with others that you want to network with. Forward our newsletters, follow us on LinkedIn, invite your connections to our events. You or somebody you know want to be a guest expert just like Aiden and share something very important with the group to get feedback and network? Or maybe you'd like to be an underwriter, building virtual presence community with FTE in a unique way showcasing your thought leadership and brand. Well, contact us. Next on FTE, next week, next Tuesday, the 19th of October, green light to talk about mental health and well-being at work. Mental health is a global pandemic that nobody is talking about. Liz Swigert, who was with us for a little bit earlier, big four partner in doctorate leadership psychology, will share her personal journey in with mental health and other insights into practical ways leaders can actually foster a work environment where you can feel safe to talk about mental health and well-being. December 1st, Future of Technology miniseries begins with leveraging virtual reality technology into immersive experience solutions led by Dr. Verdi, virtual reality product leader for Facebook. So sign up right now, www.fte.network, or just hit the green button that's on the newsletters that you're receiving. We're out of time. And once again, Aiden O'Brien, thank you very much. And thanks to everybody for joining from the experts. Y'all have a great day and please take a minute and fill out the survey. Thanks.